Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host, Dan Larson, as we navigate the Washington blob and try to wean the country off the self-licking ice cream cone that is the military-industrial complex. It's not easy because everyone loves ice cream, but someone has to do it. This week, we will be talking to ACE investigative journalist Nick Terse, who co-wrote an amazing report for The Intercept on America's covert special operations missions across the globe. But first, we'd like to talk a little bit about Biden's trip to the Middle East this week, specifically his visit to Saudi Arabia and a recent federal court development in which a judge said the administration has until August 1st to weigh in on whether Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is immune or not from a civil prosecution over the death of journalist Jamal Ashogi. Ashogi, a Saudi American, killed and dismembered in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul in 2018, has a fiance uh, who is interested, who has launched, sorry, uh, a civil suit uh, for his murder against Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and his government. The CIA has determined that MBS ordered it, the murder. Yet Biden has not repudiated the Crown Prince for the murder and instead has been meeting with him or is expected to be meeting with him this week. We are recording this before the trip, so that visit may or may not have happened already. Hashogi's fiance um, and others are pressuring the Biden administration uh, to take the high road and 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 allow the civil suit to uh, go forward. Um, no doubt Biden's uh, opinion will carry weight here. This comes at a time when the president is not only going to the Middle East, specifically Saudi Arabia and UAE, looking for more oil supplies, but helping to arrange new arrangements, uh, security arrangements with Israel, and by all reports, a new security alliance in the Middle East. In short, Biden has hardly been treating Saudi Arabia as the pariah it is. Dan, what are the chances that the Biden administration will say that MBS is liable for the death of Jamal Khashoggi? Well, I, I doubt that they're going to specifically put, point the finger at him or, or actually hold him accountable in any real way. They, I mean, they had the opportunity to do that last year when they uh, slapped a few sanctions on some of the the lower down people that were implicated in the plot. Uh, they had the chance then to put sanctions on him personally. They they opted not to. And Biden's excuse for that at the time was, well, we don't do that to the leaders of quote unquote allies. Uh, that, that's something we simply don't do uh, because they're they're at the top of a a friendly government basically, and so I think that that position is going to hold. Uh, now the, the the question that the, the court has posed and it's an interesting one and it's an important one is whether the U.S. is actually going to go to bat for uh, Mohammed bin Salman and and shield him from liability uh, by saying that he has sovereign immunity, which of course, is, is absurd on one level because his father's still alive, right? His father's still the king. And so while Mohammed bin Salman may be running things day to day and may be the de facto leader, the one that everyone's meeting with at these at these gatherings, uh, he is not, in fact, the head of state of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And so he does not deserve the protection that would go with that role. Now, at some point, his father will die and he will presumably take the throne and then he will have that protection. Uh, but until then, uh, it should be open season on him, and they should be able to sue him into the ground if they can. Uh, and and I hope they do. And it would be a, a horrible, uh, completely unjustifiable mistake for Biden 
to intervene here and get in the way of that process. Uh, that would show him to not only be just letting the crown prince off the hook, but actually actively helping him to get away with it uh, in a way that hasn't happened thus far. And so I, I think it would be it would be incredibly uh, destructive and incredibly unwise for the president or his administration to step in and and say that someone who is clearly not the sovereign has sovereign immunity. That would that would be ridiculous. If you were a betting man, oh, oh, how much money would you plank down on what side would you? Uh, yeah, I don't know that I would want to put down that much. Um, I, I'll, I'll say uh, I would put down $20 that he does not grant sovereign immunity to the crown prince. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, I really that's see, about it. Yeah, I see a real conundrum here for the president and you know, in the past two years, he really hasn't risen to the occasion in my mind in terms of taking the right path uh, when it is uh, a, a difficult path. And I see him looking at the Middle East right now. We see all this ground being laid for these new security arrangements with the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Israel. And he's done a whole bunch with, with Israel and let a lot of things go on that end, whether it be the settlements or the killing of the Al Jazeera journalist. And I just don't feel like he is, I don't know, I just I just don't feel like he's got what it takes to, to, to take a principled stand in this case. And so I'm kind of anticipating that he'll wriggle out of this in one way or another, whether it, I don't know if he could not rule or not, um, you know, release an opinion on this, but I don't see him really making a, a strong statement either way. I think the, the safest thing for him at this point is simply to not respond to the judge's request yeah. and just allow the, the process to go forward. Um, because the, the, the only intervention that, that they're likely to make is to actually come in and shield the crown prince. So it would be better if they just left it alone. Uh, I, I really hope that that's what they end up doing. Uh, but, but as you say, he's not willing to take on, uh, to make hard choices. He's not willing to, to take decisions that carry some political risk at home. Right. Uh, which is which is strange uh, in some ways because I think if if he were to take a fairly tough line with Saudi Arabia or and with the Crown Prince in particular, that would actually be a very popular position to take. There, there's this idea that he's exposing himself to all of this backlash if he gets too tough on these governments. But the only people that are going to attack him are are paid lobbyists and people at uh, other think tanks that have sinecures uh, paid for by these governments. And so, you know, I, I don't see how that is a good enough reason or that that's something to be, that he, that he would be afraid of that so much so that he's prepared to, to bow and scrape before these despots. It's, it's just a, a very strange calculation of, of what the political risk is, because I think that there's overwhelming popular disapproval of, of the Saudi relationship there, there's very strong criticism of how close we are with the Saudis and how we've enabled them to commit all of these crimes in Yemen, for instance. And, and so I, it would seem to me that the, the upside is much greater than any possible downside in taking a firmer line. But 
what we see from Biden again and again is taking the path of least resistance. And then you have a bunch of people in the foreign policy establishment falling all over themselves to declare this status quo bias as realism. Uh, and, and we just, there was another piece this week, I think, in Foreign Affairs declaring uh, the wonders of Biden's realism <laughs> and accepting the world the way it is. Well, yes, the, there's, there's something to be said for understanding the, where, the world the way it is, but it doesn't mean that you have to, to cater to it and indulge it and reward its worst members. Uh, I, I, I can't think of very many people who are actually identifying as realists who think that currying favor with Saudi Arabia makes any sense yeah. in terms of U.S. interests. And, and what, what specifically does the U.S. get in exchange for all of the favors and protection and weapons that it provides? Uh, you, you really can't find much on, uh, on that side of the ledger for us. And so, you know, if you're being a, a kind of amoral realist, or, or not even amoral, but if you're being a very hard-nosed realist, looking at the relationship with the Saudis, you have to ask, what benefits are we getting out of it that are worth all of these costs? And I, I simply don't see any. And so the idea that this is realism uh, is just insulting both to realism and to the intelligence of the readers. Yeah, I'm wondering the same thing, particularly with this particular trip. Is it about oil? I mean, do we need the oil? Do we need uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia to open up its markets and start producing more oil because of the, the current energy crisis is that what he's worried about? Well, that's that's the way that it keeps getting spun by the people defending the trip. They're saying, oh, yes, he's going because oil is so important and Saudi Arabia is such an important oil producer and therefore you have to uh, bend the knee, so to speak. But they don't actually have that much spare capacity. They're not Even if they wanted to, there's not that much that they could do right now to affect the, the global price of oil. And incidentally, the, the global price of oil is already dropping now because of fears of recession. So the, the oil price is coming down through market forces long before this trip has even taken place. So it, it makes you wonder, even if you wanted to sell it as having to do with oil, it's basically unnecessary at this point. Uh, but, but, it, but Biden himself goes out of his way to deny that it has anything to do with that. He says it's basically all as a favor to the Israelis and, the, and that it's because the Israelis want him to go to this meeting in Jeddah that he's going. Uh, which to my mind does not actually improve the situation at all because all that's saying is we're going to go curry favor with these <laughs> clients because another one of our clients tells us to. Right. And, and that's not how client relationships are supposed to work. The U.S. doesn't work for them. If anything, they're supposed to be working on our behalf and working for our interests. And that's the whole reason why we have that relationship, to advance our interests. And nobody, as far as I can tell, can point to a single U.S. interest that will be advanced by this trip or any of the other favors that are being handed out. Well, if I was a neocon and I was a hawk and some of these people who are defending him as, as a realist, I would say, well, you know, if we help to bring Israel and Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Arab states together, then we will build a security alliance against our common enemy, Iran. And I'm wondering if that's where all these roads lead to, that we are currying favor with these despots and with Israel, because the ultimate goal is that we want to contain Iran and put it in a little box. Well, I, I'm sure that that probably is the goal 
for many of the people that are advocating for this, that are supporting it, um, they, they, they do want to see an anti-Iranian coalition form and they want to, to see it strengthened. But what that will inevitably mean, if it does come to pass, is that the U.S. will be the one underwriting all of it, will be the ones arming all of its members, and our troops and ships will be expected to help defend this new coalition. And so the idea that this will in some way lessen the burden on us, which sometimes we sometimes see people say, uh, is exactly wrong. The, the more formal commitments we make to all of these different states and the more formal connections between them there are, the worse it is for us because it means that we'll be bogged down there permanently. That's right. Uh, or, or, I mean, we're already bogged down there permanently, but we'll, we'll, we will continue to be bogged down there permanently, and it will be that much harder to extricate ourselves later. And, and so that's, well, if that's supposed to be the feature, the, the benefit uh, over the long term, I, I say no thank you, because the last thing we need to do is to find some sort of formalized security structure uh, to create additional commitments for the U.S. when we already have dozens of alliances that are, are already overstretching our resources. So bottom line, what is the legacy of Jamal Khashoggi and how is it being shaped by this administration and by the trip this week? Well, I mean, I, I think his, his legacy lives on through the work of, uh, of the organization that he founded through Democracy for the Arab World Now. Uh, and then I've written for them a few times uh, in full disclosure. Uh, and they, they continue to do the, the work of witnessing on behalf of uh, dissidents in Saudi Arabia and throughout the region uh, in opposition to the authoritarian governments that we are going out of our, that our government is going out of its way uh, to enable and support. And so I think, I think his legacy is, is secure in the sense that there are lots of people that are following his example and are building on the work that he already did. I, I think you know, the Biden administration is bringing discredit on itself by, by not aligning itself with that vision, with that work. And, uh, and I think they're going to end up regretting it, especially since they made such a big deal over the first year of saying human rights will be at the center of our foreign yeah. policy. They didn't have to say that. They, they wanted to say that because they thought that would make a clear distinction between them and Trump. And when it actually came down to doing it, though, they had no interest in doing it. And we've seen that across the board. We've seen it from Western Sahara to, to Azerbaijan, to the occupied territories in Palestine, to Yemen, uh, and on. Uh, it's simply not that important to them. And, uh, and that's going to be to their discredit in the end. Next up, we welcome Nick Terse, investigative journalist for The Intercept, to the show. Nick is the author of one of my favorite books of the last decade, Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam, as well as several other books, including The Changing Face of Empire, Special Ops Drones, Spies, Proxy Fighters, Secret Bases, and Cyber Warfare. He is also the managing editor of Tom Dispatch and has written for The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Vice, Harper's, and I'm proud to say he writes regularly for Responsible Statecraft. Welcome to the show, Nick. 
Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Yes, um, just honored to have you. Um, you just had an amazing piece uh, in The Intercept recently, co-authored with Alice Sperry about some exclusive new information obtained from freedom of information requests that you guys put out about secret U.S. operations missions abroad. What you found was that U.S. proxy wars across the Middle East and Africa are much more prevalent than we ever thought. Can you break down uh, for us what you found and uh, what it all means? Sure. Uh, this is a, a topic I've been covering for a long time, and it centers around a specific, very obscure funding authority, which is known in, in military parlance as 127 ECHO. And under this authority, the U.S. arms, trains, and provides intelligence to foreign forces. But unlike uh, traditional foreign assistance programs, which are primarily intended to build uh, local capacity and assist local forces, these 127 ECHO partners are dispatched on U.S.-directed missions targeting U.S. enemies to achieve U.S. aims. So to be clear, this allows the most elite uh, U.S. troops, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, and others, to use foreign forces uh, to do America's bidding. They're true surrogates or proxies acting on behalf of the United States. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed. And, and you mentioned that uh, most of these or many of them um, are still operating today um, in the Middle East and North Africa. Can you go into a little bit about where we might find these special operations under this particular program operating today. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's been very difficult to tease apart, but um, you know, what, what Aliche a, a Sperry and I found out was that uh, between 2017 and 2020, US commandos conducted at least 23 separate 127 ECHO programs across the world. Um, we've known for a long time that these programs are used throughout Africa, uh, quite a few of them uh, operating in Somalia, uh, several others in Niger. Uh, but our, our recent findings, we were able to, to show that these have been conducted uh, across the Middle East as well, which is, has never been reported as uh, before. And uh, this was confirmed to us by uh, General Joseph Otel. He's a retired a uh, four-star army general who headed both Special Operations Command and Central Command, uh, which oversees U.S. military efforts in the Middle East. And uh, he confirmed the existence uh, that we found through our reporting of 127 ECHO efforts in Egypt, which was run under the moniker Enigma Hunter, uh, Lebanon, which was known as Lion Hunter, as well as in Syria and Yemen. Uh, we also found that there was a 127 Echo run for a time in Iraq uh, from another former official, and then uh, a set of uh, formerly secret documents that I was able to get a hold of show that there was a 127 Echo program called Obsidian Tower that was run in Tunisia. So, what are what are they doing? I mean, essentially, are they is are these mostly training missions? Are they patrolling? I mean, are they actually securing things? I mean. How, what, what are we supposed to think about how they're operating? Yeah, these are counterterrorism missions that they're, they're carrying out. Uh, they're specifically targeting uh, militant groups or individual militants. Um, they're not traditional training or, or assistance programs, which is normally 
uh, you know, what the United States at least claims it's doing, you know, out in the world in these sorts of places. These are proxy forces that the United States is arming. They're generally kitted up the same way as uh, as the tier one uh, U.S. operators are. So they have the same weapons, equipment, gear as a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret in the field. Uh, we provide them with the intelligence and then the United States sends these forces out uh, to conduct these counterterrorism missions, to conduct combat uh, on behalf of the American people. Uh, but they don't publicize these programs. These have been kept under wraps for years. Uh, if you ask the White House about it, you ask Special Operations Command about it, you ask the uh, Pentagon about it, they, um, you know, they they will not tell you anything about these programs. They're they're highly classified. Okay, so I have to ask: Are these uh, programs authorized by Congress in any way? Because it sounds like we are engaging in hostilities in other parts of the world. Um, is that not considered? war and does congress have anything to say about it it's a it's an excellent question and it's very difficult to tease apart uh what congress has done in this case uh this dates back to the earliest days of the war in afghanistan when uh u.s commandos found themselves um you know looking to employ uh members of the northern alliance in the fight against the taliban but realizing that they didn't have the money to do so, and that they had to rely on the CIA to provide funding. Uh, they went back uh, to the United States and said this was a problem. They needed their own funding support. So Congress uh, authorized this money to be used. Uh, so 127 Echo isn't an operational authority. It doesn't uh, send troops out to the field. It's a funding authority. It provides a pot of money. And then uh, U.S. commanders make a case uh, for the need to employ proxies in these various areas around the world. Most of the time, uh, most members of Congress have no idea that, uh, that these programs are going on. Uh, the, the Pentagon has kept these, the, the documents surrounding the program uh, held very closely. And basically, it's only a few members of the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee and House Armed Services Committee that have access to it. Uh, they usually rely on their staffers to read such documents, but um, the staffers uh, you know, don't have the clearances for it. So most members of Congress don't have time or inclination to go in a, a, a specialized room where they can look at these documents. So the, the operations go on uh, you know, with, with very little accountability. And even members of the, uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee which you know, theoretically should be uh, you know, well aware of what the United States is doing uh, overseas, uh, they have no access to these, these, uh, the documents and information on the program. Uh, you know, they're, they're, their staffers have, have no way to access it. So you know, these, these programs are, are going on without the knowledge of, of most members of Congress with very, very little oversight, and it's by design. Hi, Nick. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. And on this question of oversight, I noticed you also talked about how people at the State Department often don't uh, have much information about this either, uh, and how the, the local uh, commanders will sort of overawe uh, ambassadors uh, and and, uh, and other officials at embassies uh, to, to convince them to carry out these missions. 
uh, I think in, in one part of the report, you're saying that you know the, the fewer people that can get in the way, uh, the easier it is for them to operate, and that's the way they like it. Uh, if, if neither the State Department nor Congress has any idea of what's going on, uh, how can these programs be reined in? Yeah, that that's exactly uh, the, the the point that we were we were trying to make in this, and and also some earlier coverage that uh, Alice and I uh, did of this program. Uh, yes, written into uh, the law, the U.S. Code, um, it says that 127 Echo must be briefed to the chief of mission, so basically the ambassador of a country. But uh, you know, as you said, uh, generally, uh, you know, a, a general goes in. Uh, Oz, the ambassador, says we have to carry out these programs or people are going to die. And uh, but also, you know, generally tells them they have to keep this uh, you know, on the on the down low. And, you know, because of this, uh, the information never really migrates back to uh, home base State Department in, in Washington, D.C. So the information about it stays in country and the folks that actually understand the authority better and um, and understand the need for oversight, uh, you know, better than the, the ambassador usually does, uh, they're never briefed on these programs. So, again, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, there's there's a real lack of oversight, lack of accountability. And when uh, members of Congress have, have tried to, uh, you know, get more oversight into the law, through the the uh, defense spending bills each year, uh, these generally get knocked down. Uh, Sarah Jacobs, who's a congressman from Cal- uh, congressperson from California, has uh, has tried to get uh, you know more oversight of 127 Echo into the uh, NDAA, the Defense Authorization Bill, for the last several years, but it keeps getting um, <laughs> taken out when when. Uh, and the, the draft of the bill goes to the Senate. So there are members of Congress who are trying to provide oversight on this, but it's been very difficult. And again, it's uh, Special Operations Command, it's the Pentagon, uh, going to members of the Armed Services Committee saying that, um, you know, we need this authority. Uh, we provide our own oversight. Uh, but uh, as, as Aliche and I looked at it, uh, their type of oversight you know, is very different from, uh, from you know, a, a, a true outside oversight, which provides real accountability. Definitely. And, and one of the disturbing things that I came across, that we came across in your report uh, that you included in it, uh, is that many of the, some of the units that U.S. forces are uh, sent to work alongside to, to work with on these missions have been previously implicated in human rights abuses uh, you mentioned uh, units in Egypt operating in the Sinai. Uh, there's also one uh, in Cameroon in Central Africa. Uh, is there evidence to suggest that these programs are leading to and enabling new abuses uh, by those local forces? Yeah, this is this is something. It's a, it's another thing that uh, uh, Congresswoman Jacobs has has tried to to look at and um, had a difficult time doing, and something that uh, that Aliche and I have have really. Uh, try to dig into it's yeah. They, there's such a close hold on this information. It's very difficult to try to uh, to figure out the individual who the individual members of these foreign units are and uh, what their missions look like, what they're they're up to. Uh, we have exclusive documents that we use for this report, but they're extremely heavily redacted. So 
you know, they, they try and keep information about the partners as secret as possible. Uh, in some earlier reporting uh, this year, um, we found that uh, the, the 127 Echo program in Cameroon that you mentioned, um, it turned out that months after the, the head of U.S. Africa Command had announced that uh, funding for Cameroon's military be slashed due to uh, human rights concerns about um, a force that's known as the Rapid Intervention Battalion or, or by its French acronym BIR, um, Special Operations Forces were employing members of this elite military, Cameroonian military unit, um, you know, uh, and even though they were known for committing atrocities, including extrajudicial killings, and, you know, even because, uh, you know, and because of those killings, the U.S. had, had cut funding, but, uh, but our work with the, the unit under 127 Echo uh, just went on and on. So, you know, the lack of oversight across you know, various levels of the U.S. government has, has made it very difficult to figure out if uh, these foreign forces are committing atrocities while employed, employed by the U.S. But this is this is the real fear. And, uh, and this is why, you know, more more oversight and, uh, and more accountability mechanisms are, are necessary. Nick, who is killing um, these amendments when they do get into the NDAA every year? Are there particular hawks? on both sides of the aisle and both chambers that just make sure that they never see the light of day? Yeah, we, we haven't been able to pin down exactly which members, but it's, it's members of the, uh, the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee that okay. seem to be knocking these down. So, um, you know, so, so some, some hawks on that committee have, uh, you know, and, and on behalf of the Pentagon have continued to knock these down. And, and when we talk to, you know, former uh, commanders who are involved in these, these 127 echo missions, um, they stress that one, you know, that they're, you know, exceptionally effective in uh, targeting terrorist forces. And two, that the special operations command that the Pentagon provides effective oversight and they vet these forces. Um, But, you know, it's it's their own, you know, their it's their force and they're doing the vetting of it. So, you know, you, you need to take that with a grain of salt. Right. Um, they're they're completely exempted from what's known as, as the Leahy law or Leahy vetting, which all other U.S. partners have to go through. Um, yeah, there are a lot of problems with uh, with Leahy vetting. And I think a lot of countries have found ways around it. But at least it's a concrete mechanism that exists. And uh you know, it allows the State Department to really have eyes on these programs. But um, because there's no Leahy vetting written into the law for 127 Echo, uh, they've made sure to stay away from it. And uh, and it becomes this, this black box that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to figure out who we're employing and, and what they're doing. I mean, are these programs effective, like they say? Is there any objective metric to say whether they're doing what they say they're doing, or do we just take these commanders at their word? Yeah, this is, this is another accountability and oversight problem. Um, you know, general Richard Clark, who's the, the four-star commander of special operations command went before Congress a couple of years ago and said that 127 echo programs had directly, directly resulted in the capture or killing of thousands of terrorists but when I went to Special Operations Command and asked for the figures and to figure out exactly how many 
terrorists have been captured or killed. They told me that they didn't have these figures. So, you know, where did Clark get those numbers? You know, we don't know, you know, where they, they conjured up just, uh, you know, did he make them up? Are they based in, in any kind of fact? We just don't know. Um, you know, commanders really like the program. Uh, they say that, um, you know, it, it provides uh, access that would otherwise be unattainable. And that's probably true. And the use of proxies does keep U.S. boots off the ground. It lowers risks to U.S. forces, but it creates this, this accountability problem. Where you have unknown foreign forces acting on behalf of the American people um, without any effective oversight mechanisms. I, it, it's beyond me how uh, Congress could be falling down on its responsibilities so far, you know, like down, I, I, you know, I, I understand that there are probably a smattering of members who are working more in the interest of the Pentagon than their own constituents. And, and I bemoan that that's awful. But when you consider there are so many other members who I would, would think have, um, you know, the, the right mind on this and can't seem to overcome you know, uh, the special interests in, in their own body. And I just, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's too bad. And I'm hoping maybe, maybe a GAO report or something an IG report can be sparked where they say, okay, if, if these commanders love their programs so much, let's see, you know, show, show us the money, show us what we're getting for this and then, and put it down in black and white, but it doesn't seem like they're being pressed. No, uh, un- unfortunately, you know, this, this program, it's, it's been able to skirt any kind of, uh, you know, uh, rules or, or changes to the laws. There are, there are a couple of other programs that are like this now that have popped up. And I think as these programs proliferate, uh, one is known as Section 1202. It's, it's, a, it's even scarier than 127 Echo because it's an irregular warfare program, and it's explicitly focused on you know so-called near-peer competitors. So we're talking about Russia, China, North Korea, Iran. Uh, you know, it's it's a lot different than you know getting in a firefight with uh, with Al Shabaab or an Al Qaeda affiliate. We're talking about um, you know some nuclear armed powers there, yeah. and. Um, you know, it has has very it's it's very similar in how the law was written. It has uh, you know very little in the way of oversight. There's a, another uh, program that we mentioned in our piece called uh, 127F or 127 Foxtrot, which is it's brand new. It's very similar to 127 Echo, and um, it has a couple more accountability functions written into it. But again, uh, the operations are clandestine. Um, they, they, they keep all of it very secret. So it's it's tough to know uh, who's doing what and where in a program like that. Well, I hope you'll come back on the show and talk about this. I feel like we've only scratched the surface and it's very disturbing. And I and I know and um, that are those who are listening are, are probably pretty disturbed that they haven't read your, your piece already. It's it's in the uh, in the intercept uh, and it's Aliche Sperry, yes. Nick Terse. Don't miss it. Uh, we'll link it to the show notes. But thank you so much uh, for coming on to, to talk about it, Nick. Thank you, Kelly. And thank you, Dan. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. 
If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.